Good morning, church. Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, and welcome back. For those of you who uh, took advantage of the Labor Day weekend and uh, did a little bit more camping, uh, did a little bit more um, heading to the beach, had to be careful with that. Uh, and also, some of you went and uh, saw your mother turn 88 years old, and we're glad you guys are back, and uh, what a joy that was for um, the Schultz family. Um, you may have noticed underneath the title uh, on the bulletin sheet this morning that uh, there are, there's a little section called the credits. That's a first uh, as far as the church here, uh, but I uh, want to include that from now on in the beginning of every message, and here's the why. My goal is to offer full disclosure of all the sources that contribute to the messages that I preach here, and to offer you the opportunity uh, to further benefit from some of those sources like I have. Now, preaching on the average of 46 to 48 messages a year is churning a lot of butter. To do that, I milk a lot of cows, all right? And uh, I don't want to deny credit to any of those whose words or ideas are a part of those messages. Besides, uh, last week's message about Ananias and Sapphira reminded me that the Holy Spirit doesn't take kindly to Christians who misrepresent or over-exaggerate themselves to their church. And I never, I never want to do that with you in regards to my message. Um, some men and women are rain clouds. Others are rain barrels. I'm the latter. I do a lot of receiving and I do a lot of, um, of handing and giving away what I've received. But uh, uh, there are those in, in this world that God has given some very, very fresh wind, fresh fire, fresh rain to and I've been a recipient of a lot of that. But no matter where the rain comes from, he's the living water. Amen? We're in our second week in a mini-series that I've entitled Wind and Fire. That's a part of a larger series that we're in in the Gospel of John and have been since the beginning of this year. But for three weeks, we're going to be taking a closer look at the Holy Spirit. This person that Jesus talked about more in his last hours on this earth than any other person. And the reason is because he was about to leave. And you know why. The crucifixion's coming. And so he's trying to comfort his disciples by saying that although he has to leave, they won't be left. They will not be orphaned, he said in John 14. I will instead send an advocate, call him a counselor, call him a friend, but he will be the Holy Spirit. And he is like Ruach, the Old Testament would say. He is like Numa, the writers of the New Testament would say. He is like those of us who speak English, the wind. Because the wind is the root word in both the Hebrew word and both the Greek word of what Scripture is trying to convey this spirit is like. He isn't wind, but he operates like the wind. At least in the sense that he's not physical in a way that you can touch him. But oh, when he's present... His presence is very tangible. You know he's there. And like the wind, he dictates when his presence is going to be felt and where it's going to be felt and how much is going to be felt and how, how long it's going to be there. And for those of us, like me, with control issues, that can be a little frustrating. We talked about all of that last week. And I just want to say again, I've never been successful in demanding that the wind do anything in my life. Prepare for it, yes. Anticipate it, yes. Being blessed by it, yes. But control it, never. 
Never. Coerce it? No. Trust it? Yeah, done that. Respect it? Yes. Marvel at the wind? Yes. Move by it? Yes. The picture that you see up here on the, the screen is a way that I can illustrate that. It's a sailboat that belongs to Steve and Ellen Hightower. They invited Gail and I down to um, their place in Mexico a couple of years back to do a little sailing. Uh, that's a 40-foot sea runner trimaran for those of you who are sailing aficionados. And that's Ellie who's at the helm. While we were on that trip, Gail and I experienced how powerless, I mean utterly powerless, a beautiful sailboat can be like the high towers when the wind just didn't blow in. The day that we sailed, we motored out to a harbor that was known to be called Martini Cove. And we snorkeled there for about two hours in the beautiful emerald waters there. But we really had only intended to be there about an hour because we were waiting for the wind to pick up. There just wasn't any. And so there wasn't going to be any sailing at all. But I'm telling you, all of that changed in a moment. Steve asked everybody to get back on board, and we started to motor out of the cove. <clears throat> and when we hit the open water, all four of us took our positions and started raising sails and this being the first time that Gail and I had ever been on a sailboat in any of our lives, we were wondering, will there be much difference in the power of the wind compared to the power of that little motor that had taken us out of the dock and into the cove and now out to the open sea? Oh, baby. <laughs> I am telling you, when that wind hit that sail and it filled, and I mean it popped the results were instantaneous, and they were amazing. We had motored out at about five miles an hour, okay? That's just, in a 40-foot boat, that takes forever. And then all of a sudden, with full sail, we were going 25 miles an hour. Now, for some of you saying that, whoa, that's just lightning. Let me tell you, in a sailboat, it is. That trimaran was moving through the water, and it was utterly amazing. Because just moments before, there were these lifeless sails and this dead-in-the-water boat, and then shortly thereafter, when that wind hit, it was amazing. But although like the wind, the Spirit's a person. Just as undeniable, just as unmistakable when He's present, but He is a person. He's a, a friend, not a force we saw last week. He, he's not just a power, He's a person. Now, historically for the churches of Christ, that's been a little bit of a disconnect for us. Because we have thought of the Holy Spirit as a what and not a who. As an it rather than a he. And any hopes of a real relationship with him was really not very possible with that kind of thinking. And so my hope for this little mini-series is to point us to the scriptures again that have the potential to change, first of all, how we think of this Holy Spirit as a person. That was the emphasis last week. But this week, as a power. Because I want to stand on the promises of God when this person is present in your life, there is power, unmistakable, undeniable power. And so that's why you want to make room. If you make room for anybody to be in your life, you want to make room for this person, the Holy Spirit. You say, well, Jimmy, come on. What real difference can he make in my life? <laughs> Let me show you. Listen to what Jesus promised the disciples just before he was teleported back to his Father's presence in the heavenlies. Do not leave Jerusalem, he said in Acts, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. 
For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. Now, if you've never heard those scriptures before, maybe you're wondering, well, did they, did they wait? <laughs> yes, they did. Because why wouldn't you wait? Why wouldn't you follow the instructions of a man who was resurrected from the dead and had lived with you for 40 days? You'd do just about anything he said, right? And they did. Acts 2, verses 1 through 4 is what they did. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly... A sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages as the Spirit enabled them, as He empowered them. Now I love this. Peter, who, who not many days ago was denying that he even knew this Christ, is so filled with this Spirit, so filled with this Christ, that all of a sudden he begins teaching publicly. He wouldn't even admit it to a young middle school girl in, a, in the dark of a night. Now he's preaching to thousands about this Christ that God had sent and they had crucified, but that God had raised from the dead. And I'm telling you that message absolutely wrecks them to the point that they cry out and say, what do we do with this? Mothers, what are we going to do? Now, I want to hit pause here for just a moment because I get that. On occasion, I understand what, what, what's happening with Peter. Um, there are those moments when those of us here or in a classroom or in someone's car all of a sudden are, are trying to speak for Christ and all of a sudden the Spirit of Christ takes over. Joanne Gibbons caught me a little bit after services last week, and she said, okay, you hit spirit gear today. And I went, what do you mean by that? She says, oh, we can tell. So there are a couple of sisters. We just call it the spirit gear. Whenever we can tell, the spirit just takes over what you're saying, and the air changes. And I said, I know what that's like. And I can tell, too, because the, the air really is different. And I wish I had more control over that, but you just don't have control over the wind. Not to say the Spirit's not in those other words, but there's this, this time when he takes over and says, uh, excuse me, Jim, I got this. Still uses a person, but all of a sudden, it's just different. Peter's experiencing that. This is not some calculated, contrived message. No, boom, this is the Spirit speaking through Peter, and it wrecks these people. Wind, yes, but no, in this particular context, it's like a fire that's ablaze in Peter. And these people are cut to the heart and say, Peter, what do we do? And here's the response. Verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, just as Sierra did a few moments ago. And just as Sierra, he says, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call. With many words, he warned them. Now, if you ever wonder if it's all right to preach long sermons, with many words, he warned them. It's right there in the Bible. I didn't even have that in my notes. Thank you, Spirit. But he pleads with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to the number that day. Now, I don't know how you define a moment like that, but I'll call it fired up. And they were. 
And what's going on here is the keeping of a promise, plain and simple. A promise Jesus had made when he told the disciples to head to Jerusalem and you stay in that weight room until he comes. Here's the promise exactly. It's in chapter 1 and verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses then, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And wow, did they receive power. Fire. Power. Which, by the way, the scriptures over and over again connect with the reliable presence of God. Remember? God speaks to Moses out of a burning bush. After escaping from Egypt, a pillar of fire guides the people of Israel through the wilderness at night. When Moses meets up with God on Mount Sinai, He's receiving the Ten Commandments from the Father, but the people left down below, what they see is not stone and and amazing words from God. What they see is a mountain engulfed, devoured, the Scripture says, by fire. And what they saw scared them. What they saw caused a deep respect from them because God is always a fire that both has the potential to bless and offer life and also to burn and take it. And they were well aware of that. They'd seen both. But he's in charge of both. God's in charge of both. A fire that wants to instruct, not destruct, and guide and save. What's that fire like? It's the fire of a potter who wants to make a vessel out of an ordinary girl and transform it into an extraordinary mother. It's the fire of a jeweler that wants to take this rough ore of a run-of-the-mill boy and turn him into a pure gold, extraordinary husband. Yes, God can be a fire of destruction, and he gets a bum rap that that's what he is primarily, but it's not. His primary purpose is to be a fire of transformation, a fire that lights us up and changes us and melts us down and reforms us and reshapes us, all the while into a white-hot, listen to me, relationship with the creator of the universe. It was so amazing to pray over Eliana a few moments ago, thinking, God, this could be one more, one more person that you can have a white-hot relationship with and that beam into our world. We so need Eliana to do that. We're so glad Sarah said, yes, count me in for that. When the Spirit comes, when the fire comes, it's a present that's unmistakable and undeniable, even, listen to me, when he leads you into the fiery furnace like he did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's part of that fire history that we have in the Old Testament. But they're even in a fiery furnace in a place that nobody wants to go, where the heat is incredible, beyond human ability to withstand. And some of you are there right this minute. God says, even there, this white-hot relationship will not leave you alone. You will know I'm there with you. How can this simple preacher say, you need that kind of person and you need that kind of power in your life? You do. Nothing less than wind, nothing less than the fire that literally comes from God. Now, if you're not a Christ follower, what all I've said this morning, that's just optional. Take it or leave it. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I think you want to lean into this. I've got more word to point you to, but I think you really want to lean into this and consider this and think about this and ponder this. Because the Holy Spirit, for those of us who are followers, it's not just that he's a gift. He's a must. A must. 
He's not optional equipment. He's standard. And the reason is simple. If the disciples, if the apostles needed this power that comes from this person, how can we not think that we do? Let me walk you back to what these guys were. They walked with the miracle machine. They sat at the feet of the most profound teacher the world's ever seen. They witnessed a man who commanded the forces of nature like a man commands his dog. They not only saw him raise the dead, they saw him raised from the dead. And yet, all of that together was not enough for the task that Jesus had pulled them aside for three and a half years to equip them to do. Still not enough. You go to Jerusalem to the weight room because what you need is still lacking. But it's coming. He's coming. Brother, I need you to consider strongly that you need him just that much. That if the scripture wasn't enough, and they knew plenty, that if being baptized wasn't enough, and they were, that if the knowledge and belief of a risen Christ wasn't enough, and they knew it and believed it, then maybe, just maybe, it isn't enough for you either. Can I be honest? I have um, walked for significant periods in my lifetime thinking that if you had a little Jesus in your life and a little scripture in your life and being baptized in your life, that made for a pretty good life. Jesus begs to differ. And I want us to consider again the huge significance of the Holy Spirit and his place in our lives that we might live life truly to the full that God's dreamed for us. Let me, let me start here because we need to get on the same page. I think it's pretty easy for you to agree that if Jesus doesn't come... The Old Testament is pretty meaningless and maybe even irrelevant. Let me say it again so you can think about this. If Jesus doesn't come, I think you can say that the Old Testament is pretty meaningless and irrelevant. If you agree, say, I agree. Okay. But have you considered that if the Spirit doesn't come, much of life under the New Covenant is rendered meaningless and downright impossible? Well, don't take my word for it. I want you to hear for the next three or four minutes exactly God's word on the subject. For starters, Jesus is conceived because the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary. No Holy Spirit on this virgin, no baby, no birth. And the Bible is going to say unless you experience the new birth of the kingdom through the Spirit that comes upon you, no place in God's kingdom. Here's John 3, 5, and 6 to be specific. Truly, truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of the water and the what? Spirit. Flesh gives birth to spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to only spirit. Now, Paul's going to underscore this when he writes in Romans chapter 18. You can't just simply be his child without his Holy Spirit. You can't live without his Holy Spirit if you're in Christ. Those of you who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. If you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Christ. That's why if you're around us much, we're going to talk to you about him and try to introduce you to him so that you can walk along with him because of this passage right here. If you are in the realm of the flesh, you cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, those of you who are followers of Christ, but you're in the realm of the spirit. Does that make us better than those who are walking in the flesh? No. But it does make us different. Keep reading with me. 
You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you're in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anybody does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So what we're seeing is, is it's more than just getting started here that requires the Holy Spirit. But it's also living in Jesus through the Spirit that's also needed. 2 Corinthians 3, 6 underscores this. He has made us ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now those of you who've read this story at all about God reads through the part of it called the Old Testament. And we know that to have a relationship with God, He insisted that they follow the law. Right? If you, believe, if you understand that, nod your head like this. Okay, good, lots of nods. In the Old Testament, this part of the story of God, if you wanted a relationship with God, you needed to follow the law that he'd given. But then, all of a sudden, he changes in the New Testament. And he says, it's not going to be about the letter, because we saw how that just kind of killed a relationship. We never could live up to it, but it's going to be founded in the Spirit. That's what it's going to be found. Not law, Old Covenant, Spirit, New Covenant. Let me show you how essential that is when we come to the next passage of Scripture. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God's freely given us. This is what we speak, not words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolish and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. That's the verse that rocked my world in college. It never left me the same. I had always grown up understanding how important Jesus was in my life and the cross was in my life and the resurrection. But until I, I, I saw that for the first time and understood it for the first time, you can't even understand the words of this book without the Spirit the way God intended them to be understood. And you really can't count yourself as destined for heaven without this Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 5 says this, Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, and he's given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is how significant is this Holy Spirit to the life of the church? Let me ask you to think of it this way. Think of uh, racial equality without Martin Luther King. Can you? Think about the destruction of apartheid without Nelson Mandela. Think about the Chicago Bulls winning five NBA championships without Michael Jordan. Too many times, I believe, in my lifetime, I have tried to think about living for him in the church without the Holy Spirit. And regrettably, there is a large section of my life that's connected to that. Now, I'm, I'm no authority on the Spirit. I will never claim to be. I feel like a kindergarten, to tell you the truth. But let me ask you, where are you? Well, not just the knowledge of the Spirit, but, but the walking with the Spirit, the being led by the Spirit, the being filled with the Spirit. Where are you with all that? William Law rocked my world this week as I once again read this quote from him. The Christian church is in the same apostasy that characterized the Jewish nation. And it has occurred for one and the same reason. The Jews refused him who was a substance and fulfilling of all that was taught in their law and prophets. His name is Jesus. They refused him. 
The Christian church is fallen in a state for the same rejection of the Holy Spirit, who was given to the power and the fulfilling of all that was promised by the gospel. The Holy Spirit's coming was no less to fulfill the gospel than Christ's coming was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. That's heavy. And that could be just man's opinion unless you read Galatians 3 and verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We believe that, don't we? Amen? Amen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. But here's the so that. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. That's why he died on the cross. That's why law could say the gospel is fulfilled. The gospel is fulfilled when we receive the Spirit. And it's, it's ludicrous to think that you have fulfilled the gospel any more than the Jews could not receive Jesus and think that they can have a relationship with God. So, Jimmy, I thought that cross was for the forgiveness of our sins. It is. But that's just for the house cleaning. Okay? Because God wants to move in. And so he's cleaning up that house of yours because he wants to make his home with you. And when God's in the house, it's a different house. I tried to think of another illustration this week to, to show the power of the Spirit and the difference it makes when He's present in our life and then also when He's present but not invited to be active. I sorted through them all, and here's the one that I came up with. We're just fresh off of Labor Day, and some of you went to the beach, some of you went to the lake, but some of you stayed home because you had some chores to do. Let's just say that your wife knows that you have been meaning to get out to that back acreage there, and there's about 150, 200 trees to get after on those acres that you have. And so she has mercy on your soul, and she goes down to Lowe's, and she brides you a brand-new steel chainsaw. I mean, baby. On sale, she saved 30%, so that's why you got it. Pity, yes, but also sales are a beautiful thing. So she brings this chainsaw home, and she hands it to you. And you've heard how powerful a steel saw can be. And it unnerves you a little bit, and so you put it up in the attic. Not quite sure what to do with that thing, kind of scares you a little bit. You put it up in the attic, but you've got your Swiss Army knife. And, man, you feel comfortable with that. I mean, it's the deluxe model, all right? It's even got that little saw blade in there. It's amazing, beautiful red. It, 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 just, it just fits the palm so well. And so you go out to the back 40, and you start on your first tree. And, I mean, you're working on that thing, and you're getting after it, and you spend all day, and you've done as, as much as you can, and it's, you barely nick the thing, but your knuckles are bloody, and you're worn to a frazzle, and you're thinking, this will take me a lifetime with this. And all the while in the attic of your home is power sitting in a box. Now, please, I know the Holy Spirit's not a chainsaw. Save your emails, okay? That's not the point I'm making. The Holy Spirit is not a tool in our hands that we use for our purposes. No, we're a tool in His hands to be used for His purposes. But far too many of us are attempting to live lives like the guy who's trying to cut down a forest with a pocket knife. When there's a chainsaw unboxed and unopened in our home. Unbelievable power, undeniable power, but unboxed power. Okay, Jimmy, I bite. I'm in. How in the world do I uh, take what you said and begin to put him in my life? Here's where we start, number one. You take him seriously. 
He's promised you power, personal, substantial, beyond your imagination power. He's promised, not just as a tool for you to do what you want with your life, but as a personal partner with you. He wants to come into your life and live it with you. Take him seriously. Number two, put your faith in him sincerely. This is an all-in proposition, folks. The same faith that you exercise to believe Jesus Christ's death on the cross brings you redemption. That same faith. And it takes a lot of faith to believe that. I'm asking you to have in the Holy Spirit coming into your life to bring transformation. Both require faith. Number three, embrace Him wholeheartedly. I'm not talking about just logically. I'm talking about wholeheartedly with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And all your power, the power that he's given every single one of us to respond to him when he comes to us. He's not just another piece of biblical knowledge to be studied. He is God himself for heaven's sakes. He's meant to be welcomed into our heart. And I think you have his word on that this morning, not mine. Now, if anybody here has been cut to the heart and you say, I I want him in my life, here's what you do. It's not any different than what Peter said that those folks who heard him were to do. Repent and be baptized. Just like Sierra was today. Sierra decided, I'm not going to live life on my terms anymore. It's on his terms now. So I'm going to experience the only death that really is going to make any difference in my life. And she was buried back there a few moments ago. She attended her own funeral. And in that midst, her Her body somehow, mysteriously, miraculously, is connected with the death of Christ at the cross. And his blood that shed right there cleansed her up, cleansed her home out, so that the spirit right there in that water could move in and be a part of her life forever. Forever. And that could be true of you. But you have to respond. You've got to open the box. You've got to take a step. You've got to do something. Now, I could end by just leaving you with an illustration about a chainsaw and a tree. But what I really want to try to do is to leave you with an illustration about the spirit in a life. Kim Valdez is a young lady who has been a part of the Arms of Hope family for a while. And she shared a testimony that we put on tape. Raymond Schultz and Josh Rogers um, took her back in our offices back there and taped her story of how the Spirit's power can make a difference in a human being's life. Listen. My name is Kimberly Valdez. I am 29 years old. I was born in San Angelo, Texas, but now I am living at Arms of Hope with my four children. The reason I came to Arms of Hope was because I was in a relationship that was not healthy. Though at the time I thought it was normal, I got married at age 16. It was not by my choice, but the choice of my parents. I had known this man for only two days. I felt so confused and wondered what I had done. On May 16, 2005, I became his property. That's what he would tell me. The abuse began within two weeks of being married. It started with verbal, but quickly increased being punched, kicked, pushed, dragged, and slapped. I was forced to do use drugs 
because if I didn't, he would threaten to beat me. Even when I did, he would still hurt me. I didn't know what to do. I was stuck. When I went to my mother for help, she told me I had to go back and stick with him. I was covered in bruises on my face and body. When I asked her why I had to go back, she said that I was to be hit. I turned around and left. For 12 years, this went on until an incident happened and Child Protective Services came in and took my kids away. I felt lost and hurt and he was arrested the same day. I complied with DPS, started working as a cashier and everything was going all so well until he was released. He found out where I was working and started to harass me. So I had to move to a women's shelter in New Francis. I felt like he was still had control over me. I left there I left there with the constant worry that he would find me. It felt like I was living in hell. I was a bitter I was bitter and angry all the time at the world. I was jealous of people who lived happy lives. One day, a friend invited me to go to church with her. I went with an open heart and mind ready to accept Jesus into my life. I would pray and ask him, why me? I begged him to help me get out of what I was going through. That morning of service, the minister was talking about forgiveness. I broke down and I had, really, I had a really good feeling, something I had never felt before, like everything was going to be okay. I gave it all to Jesus that day, all the hurt, misery, anger, and bitterness. I forgave all the people that had hurt me. Now I have my four wonderful children back home. I can see that they are really happy and they don't have to be scared, nervous, or hurt anymore. They are able to be kids and laugh, joke, dance, and talk and sing. As for me, I'm going to school. I earned my GED, which I thought I was never going to be able to get. I have a 4.0 GPA right now at Lapsing Institute on my way to becoming a lab tech. And I just need one month and two weeks, then I graduate in January of 2019. How do you begin to tell someone who's experienced 12 years of abuse like that to someone who referred to her as his property, that he could do with her whatever he wanted? How do you help someone believe that they could have a life after that? I don't know outside of Jesus Christ. I don't know outside of him coming in and giving me the power to forgive, helping me with that, giving me the power to believe that life could be better. Please. If there's any one of you here today who, like this incredible young lady, wants to start down a path that you have never walked before, you don't have to do that alone. A bunch of ragamuffins in this place are going to be at the back and here. There, we're elders here at this church, the minister here. Um, if there is anything that looks like power, looks like it's together, looks like it has a life, it's only because of Jesus Christ in our lives. And we're just vessels to help, we're bridges to help you step over into that. If you've never taken that very first step to welcome them in by saying, I turn over driving this car called a life 
take it out of my hands and put it in yours, Jesus. And I'm sorry for what I've done that would cause you to have to go to a cross, but I believe that that cross is for me and that resurrection was for me and I want in. If that fits you in any form or fashion, please come find me. Find one of our elders and we want to help. But if you're my brother or sister, it takes every bit as much courage to, re to just repent of trying to live a life on your own and to say to God, I'm sorry. I had a Bible. I had those scriptures, but I've, I didn't even know to call you a he, let alone an it. I didn't even know that. And I repent. And, and, and I'm sorry that your church hasn't had the power that could have been alive in me by me walking in faith with you.